This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. You know, every so often on this show, we have catching up to do, and uh, what we usually do is dispense with a guest. This pains us somewhat here at Radio Parallax because week in and week out, we like to bring you the fun, interesting, informative kind of guests that uh, we can rustle up. We think we've been, for the most part, successful. We do want to apologize for that uh, that conversation a few months back with Congressman Weiner. Eh, just kidding. Actually, we've been pretty proud and pretty pleased to have brought you the, the array of guests we've been able to uh, over the years. We hope we will be able to continue to do that. And I'm fairly confident we will. I think week after next, we're going to see if we can't bring you David Talbot, the founder of Salon.com. He spoke with us uh, a year or two ago about his excellent book about uh, John F. Kennedy titled Brothers. He has another more recent book out called Devil Dog. It is about Smedley Darlington Butler, a man whose name might not be familiar to you, but um, who is someone you should know about. Early in the Franklin Delano Roosevelt presidency, there was an, evidently an effort afoot by certain Wall Street types to basically overthrow the U.S. government. Smedley Butler was invited into the plot and blew the whistle on it. It's a remarkable tale, to be sure, and we hope to speak with David Talbot about it in the next couple weeks. We hope also to try and secure Daniel Ockrant to talk about his book on prohibition. I know that uh, in September... Ken Burns will have another excellent uh, public television series on Prohibition, and I'm sure that uh, Daniel Ockrent's book is going to play a prominent role in it, so we look forward to bringing him to you over the summer. We'll do our best. And the legendary Peter Dale Scott is somebody we're hoping to bring back on this program. His forays into what he calls deep politics are legendary, and he is always an interesting person to speak with. We may also try to bring on his friend, Daniel Ellsberg. Though we would note that we would not be the first ones to bring Daniel Ellsberg to KDVS. We were scooped on this by our compatriots, Ron Glick and Richard Estes, on their fine program, Speaking in Tongues. One thing we may try to do with Peter Dale Scott is, uh, is work in conjunction with our good pal, Dr. Andy Jones, because Professor Scott is a well-known, distinguished poet, Although I'd be completely unqualified to speak with him about that area of artistry, Dr. Andy, uh, of course, will be quite expert. So we may do a, a, a twofer on that one. I, I hope so. But let us begin today's program, as we like to do with On This Date in History. Our date, of course, is June 16th, making this our last spring show, with the longest day of the year and the beginning of summer coming up next week. It was on June 16th in 1716 that the English poet Alexander Pope published his, his translation of the Iliad, which was praised for its language, but criticized for straying too far from the Homeric verse. Pope was cited in particular for his use of the word Oldsmobile. Actually, we stole that one from Woody Allen. On June 16th in 1878, the HMS Pinafore, a musical theater by Gilbert and Sullivan, debuted at the Bowery Theater in New York. And of course, we have used the HMS Pinafore on numerous occasions as musical beds, but maybe not today. 
After all, we used it last week. On June 16th in 1909, Glenn Curtis, the Wright brothers' fiercest competitor in flight and arch-rival in aviation technology, who founded the first commercial aviation co company in the United States, sold an airplane for $5,000. Actually, the innovations that Glenn Curtis brought to aviation pretty much revolutionized it and gave us the, the kind of planes we would recognize today, at least by their controls. In this date of 1937, the Marx Brothers' A Day at the Races premiered in Los Angeles. It's not quite as good as A Night at the Opera or Duck Soup, or some might argue Horse Feathers, but it's a damn funny movie. If you've never seen it, rent it. On June 16th in 1963, aboard Vostok 6, Soviet cosmonaut Valentina Tereshkova became the first woman to travel into space marking yet another first for the Soviet space program, which at that time was beating the pants off of the U.S. effort. Apparently, Tereshkova's enthusiasm for skydiving brought her to the attention of the Soviet space program, which had sought to put a woman in space in the early 1960s as a means, again, of beating the U.S. in one other first. She orbited the Earth 48 times in three days, during which time Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev spoke to her over the radio. As an accomplished parachutist, Tereshkova was well-equipped to handle one of the most challenging procedures of the Vostok space program, the mandatory ejection from the capsule at about 20,000 feet during re-entry. Yeah, the Russians didn't believe in these water landings like in U.S. capsules. And finally, and this is our cue for a musical bed, on June 16th in 1884, the first roller coaster in America opened at Coney Island, Brooklyn. Our quote of the day, and this may take some setting up, comes from Yogi Bikram Choudhury, the inventor of the eponymous Bikram form of yoga, a rapid series of poses in a room heated to 105 degrees. According to the London Times, he's surprisingly belligerent. You'd think he'd kind of get that out of his system with all that hot yoga. But the Times noted that he has yet to master the art of talking to journalists. He grumbled, I don't like to talk the negative things. People get cancer. People die in chronic disease. You know who's responsible for that? The media. I can keep you alive a hundred years. That's why people come to me. Whole world comes to me. You came here with a negative attitude. He barely recalled another journalist who offended him, saying, You know, I don't think a fat bitch can write a good story about me. So come to my class, lose 60 pounds, and I'll give you an interview. She thinks because she's a reporter, I'm going to kiss her ass. But she don't know Bikram Choudhury. Well, we have to admit, we don't know Bikram Choudhury, but we're getting acquainted. And our quip of the day, oddly enough, comes from Mona Charon, writing in nationalreview.com, a, uh, a media source which we have uh, poked fun at over the years. Not the least of which comes from the fact that uh, Bill Crystal writing for them seems to be wrong about everything. And, of course, the fact that the National Review itself was founded by William F. Buckley, formerly an employee of the CIA under E. Howard Hunt, Watergate burglar. It's always made us a little suspicious. But writing in NationalReview.com, Mona Charon said about John Edwards, 
that in his brief meteoric political career, he posed as a champion of the little guy. In fact, Radio Parallax spoke with John Edwards when he was here at UC Davis, supposedly promoting his efforts to end world poverty. Well, they may have been confusing that with ending John Edwards's poverty. At least I, I was never quite sure. But noted Moda Charon, in reality, Edwards was a fortune-hunting, slick, and unscrupulous trial lawyer who specialized in falsely convincing juries that it was obstetricians' fault that their babies were born with cerebral palsy. That, I would hasten to add, is an opinion shared by this correspondent. Of course, that opinion, like all those heard on this program, does not necessarily represent those of KDVS, our sponsors, or the regents of the University of California. And although Radio Parallax cannot swear to this, we're pretty sure that none of the above has ever borne a love child with Senator Edwards. Our joke of the day, it's not exactly a joke of the day, but it's our humor of the day, consisting of comments appended to manuscripts under consideration by reviewers for the journal Environmental Microbiology. In fact, every, every year in this December issue, the journal publishes a selection of reviewer comments, which included the following. The biggest problem with this manuscript, which has nearly sucked the will to live out of me, is the terrible writing style. Also, I recommend that this manuscript be rejected because I can't figure out what they did. And this is an interesting manuscript, not because of its results, but because of its complete ignorance of due scientific process. <laughs> this one may be my favorite. The abstract describes results that I could not find in the results section. Also a good one. I'm not convinced that they know what they're talking about. And finally, this was a possible candidate for the Worst Use of Statistics to Substantiate a Falsehood Award. Our stat of the day is 2.5 million. That is the number of dead or fictional voters contained on Zimbabwe's voter rolls. An independent analysis discovered this and noted that it is more than enough to swing any election. The electoral register in Zimbabwe has been a major source of contention in the country's notoriously fraudulent elections, which always return the party of Robert Mugabe to power by implausible margins. Apparently last week, a South African political scientist got a hold of a leaked copy of the register and found that it contained 5.7 million names, although Zimbabwe should have only 3.2 million registered voters. The register apparently includes tens of thousands of people supposedly over 100 years of age in a country where the average life expectancy is 49. Apparently, Republican political operatives in the U.S. here are studying this very closely. Although it appears that Barack Obama was elected fair and square in 2008, the non-elections of Al Gore and John Kerry, well, do appear to be fraudulent to the rest of the world, at least those parts that understand statistical analysis, not to mention arithmetic. But lest I digress, let us instead move into the good, the bad, and the ugly. Of 
According to the Week magazine, it was a good week last week for automated leadership after an extension of the Patriot Act was signed by an auto pen, a machine that can mimic the president's signature because Barack Obama was in Europe and they couldn't figure out how else to get the document signed. The auto pen is commonly used for somewhat more trivial matters such as the signatures on Christmas cards. Is this a great country or what? And it was reportedly a bad week last week for sin. After a Kansas University study of 15,000 people found almost no difference in the sex practiced of atheists and highly religious people, except that the religious felt very guilty about adultery, masturbation, and certain other acts. Said researcher Daniel Ray, the guilt does not stop them, it just makes them feel bad. And finally, it was an ugly week last week for government credibility in the people's paradise of North Korea. In the wake of the fact that a happiness study conducted by the North Korean government concluded that North Korea was the second happiest country in the world behind China. Cuba was third happiest, while the U.S. ranked last at 203. No word on Zimbabwe, but we at Radio Parallax do maintain a healthy skepticism about these results. It is our opinion, based on what is admittedly somewhat incomplete research, that countries where people don't have enough rice to eat, comma, or anything else simply do not have high levels of happiness. And while the U.S. is the country that's given the world both Charlie Sheen and Lady Gaga, we just can't believe we're 203rd. All right, we love The Week magazine, not only for its Good Week 4 and Bad Week 4, but also for its Only in America section for items like this. The American Civil Liberties Union is suing a South Carolina jail demanding that inmates be given access to pornography. Robin Jackson, attorney for the Berkeley County Jail, says that inmates are already provided with Bibles and other religious-themed reading materials, and the distributing porn would, quote, create all kinds of problems, because you're going to have an issue with masturbation at some point. You know, it's hard to argue with that logic. And while I admit I am no constitutional scholar... I have read the Constitution and its amendments, and I don't recall the right to pornography as something being guaranteed to all American citizens. I could be wrong, but I I just didn't see it. Mr. McMillan does suggest that the, the phrase pursuit of happiness may enter into this, but I think that phrase does come from the Declaration of Independence, not the Constitution. So we're back to square one. All right, and this follow up on the program which we dearly love. I want to quote from Judith Timpson from the Globe and Mail in Canada, commenting upon that story we mentioned last week about the Canadian couple who are keeping the sex of their baby secret. Noteth writer Timpson, this couple is well-intentioned, but wrong. And which was kind of how we looked at it. But apparently Kathy Witterick and David Stocker have sparked an international debate about the meaning of gender, after the Toronto Star profiled them last month. Now, for further details here, they had already had two sons whom they raised in a non-traditional way, allowing them to choose clothing and toys from girls' and boys' departments. One of the boys, six-year-old Jazz, 
has been teased by adults and children for his predilection for things identified as girly, such as pink poofy dresses, hair and braids, and nail polish. So the parents elected not to reveal the gender of their next baby, Storm, who's now four months old. Reportedly, even the child's grandparents don't know. The ostensible purpose of the secrecy is to protect Storm from, quote, societal stereotyping, unquote. Noted Judith Timson, it's a worthy goal. Boys should be free to play with dolls, just as girls should be allowed to choose trucks and short hair without being mocked. But, come on. She notes, it should take people about 30 seconds to figure out the fallacy here. If you keep the sex of a child secret, you are making it the most important thing about the child, not the least important thing. Meaning now it's not just the grandparents who are dying to know, it's the entire world. And speaking of gender and stereotypes and questionable behavior, how about this story? Also from Canada, by the way. Apparently a new um, back road, I guess you'd say, in the feminist movement opened up when last January, Toronto's, at Toronto's York University, a policeman told students not to dress like, quote, sluts, unquote, if they wanted to avoid being raped. That phrase sparked global outrage because it reconfirmed all the cliches about sexual assault. You know, that the woman was asking for it. So far as it goes, that's, that's you know, a totally wrong and inane view. But the movement this has started means that over the next few months this summer, you can expect in various cities in the U.S., including L.A. and Chicago, women are going to traipse about clad in push-up bras, short skirts, fishnets, and other scanty attire to raise awareness about sexual violence. Well, some commentators sounded off on this, including Julie Zago in the Sydney Morning Herald, as repeated in the Week magazine, noted that this is such a myopic protest. In dwelling on relatively minor grievances of Western women, this version of feminism ignores the problems of the world's most vulnerable women. Rape victims in Saudi Arabia and Pakistan, for example, are considered adulterers and are brutally punished. In recent years, thousands of women and girls have been raped in Congo. Yet, what triggered slut walk? Not the suffering of Congolese or Pakistani women, but the supposed oppression of the women of Toronto. The slut walk movement also ignores the role of our hypersexualized society, which has distorted women's self-image. Signing off on that in the London Telegraph, Jenny McCartney said that internet porn and pop culture exert tremendous pressure on prepubescent and teen girls to dress like Christina Aguilera, Rihanna, and other pop stars and act sexy before they even understand what sexy is. Writing in the London Independent, Yasmin Abafai Brown said, In slut walking, marching around town wearing naught but their underwear or tight t-shirts with a provocative slogan, the ostensible aim is to protest male violence and take back the word slut, but ultimately they're making a mockery of rape and women's rights. In an era where more women than men are being laid off, childcare support is being slashed, and even abortion rights are under threat, we need old-fashioned feminism more than ever. Instead, the sexualization of young women is proving the most effective whip against female progress. And I would note that personally, I understand the theory behind all this, but I don't understand how women walking around in their underwear is a way of demanding more respect. I just don't quite get it. All right, we've only got a couple minutes left here before break. Let's just do one more item about uh, confused sexual issues. 
Quoting writer Daniel Ruth, It's taken five years and two million dollars, but the American Catholic Church has at last figured out who's to blame for its ongoing sex abuse scandal. Country Joe and the Fish. Oh, and Janis Joplin. In a study commissioned by the Church's bishops, New York's John Jay College of Criminal Justice has concluded that the lax morals of the 1960s and 70s were the primary cause of the sexual abuse of thousands of teens and children by priests. The report claims that sheltered clerics couldn't cope with the societal stress of the post-Woodstock period, and as premarital sex and divorce rates skyrocketed, they got caught up in the sexual deviance of the times. Hey, I got an idea. Why don't we allow priests and nuns to have a sex life like other religions? I'm trying not to say like normal people. But I mean, you know, the Anglicans, Episcopalians, they seem to be managing pretty well with this. In the editorial at the Boston Herald, they noted somewhat incredulously that this report denies that celibacy played a role. And then fails to explain why an all-male celibate priesthood reacted to the sexual revolution by mostly abusing boys. Asking, why didn't they have sex with adults? In defense of the church, Megan Murphy-Gill wrote in uscatholic.org that this 300-page study says that multiple factors contributed to the scandal, including the inadequate preparation priests received for a life of celibacy. And pray tell, we would ask what adequate preparation would constitute for a life of celibacy. Chris, we should note in some good news, the Catholic Church, rocketing forward as it is into the 13th century, has now issued new guidelines for bishops dealing with sex abuse cases. Of course, those guidelines are strictly voluntary. Bishops will continue to have the final say, even over whether their allegations are turned over to police. As the Church sees it, the bishop remains king, reporting only to the Pope and to God. Anyway, we at Radio Parallax think we may have a solution for some of this. If you'd be so good, Mr. McMillan. Let's take a short break. You're listening to Radio Parallax, I'm Douglas Everett. You say how and I'll say when. Come and meet me down the street Take a seat It's my treat 